Father, I'm back. I'm thankful for the trip and I'm thankful for the chance to come back. I'm thankful, Father, for the blessing and the privilege that it is to teach. And I thank you that we continue to have men and women who gather and want to listen and learn. Uh, Father, I'm also thankful that we can know these things today in the book that you've given us to understand because in the days we live, we know we're close to these events. And we're privileged in that respect. We're unique in the providence of God. We've been born at a time in history in which these things are perhaps more relevant than they may be to anyone else short of those who will experience them. But Father, we also need to know how to put this to work. And the temptation is to only pay attention to the parts of the Bible that seem to talk to what we're involved in in the immediate moments of our life. And that makes sense, Father. But I'd ask, Father, that you give us an appreciation for why it's important that we understand these things so that we would understand how to put them to work. For I know, Father, they have a purpose in our life and that you can use them. So, Lord, help us in that way. And, Lord, I ask also for the sake of those we encounter who are not yet believing uh, that we would have a greater compassion for them based on what we learn about what's coming for the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to return to the final bold judgments of tribulation, and in particular, the seventh bold judgment. So we have been studying those as a part of the last series of chapters from 16 on. Let's look at a chart that we've looked at from the last time we taught. If you remember that we looked at those seven bold judgments one at a time out of chapter 16, and then things really slowed down when we hit the sixth bold judgment and now the seventh, because the seventh bold judgment now, which crosses numerous chapters in terms of where you see it described. It is not a single moment of destruction, unlike some of the earlier ones. The um, seventh bowl judgment should be thought of a little differently than that. It should be thought of more like dominoes that you would set up on a table. As the final bowl judgment is poured out, it's as if the Lord has pushed his finger on the front of one of those dominoes and the triggering of a cascade of falling is really the, the picture then of what comes out of that seventh judgment. I'm not gonna leave that up there, just it'll put you to sleep if you just stare at it long enough. So some of these dominoes, you might say, were set up by earlier bowl judgments. In fact, even some of the earlier trumpet judgments for that matter. So God has been putting pieces into place so that when he got to that last bowl judgment and he kicked off that cascade, Everything would be in its proper place. And it started, seventh one started, if you remember, with that unimaginably strong and destructive hailstorm uh, and earthquake. And the result of the, that judgment was it eliminated all mountains and islands, save Jerusalem, which now stands on the highest mountain. All Gentile nations were destroyed. All cities were destroyed. The only two cities that are still mentioned to exist in any form at all are Jerusalem and Babylon. And that one Gentile city, Babylon... The great city, as it's called, must still be ultimately destroyed. That is, even though it has already been affected and yet still stands, it's not going to stand for long. It is today, Babylon today is an ancient ruin. But in tribulation, it will be resurrected to its former glory to some extent. The Antichrist will make that city or some new version of it in the same area, if not exactly the same place. He'll make that his world capital. And just as it was in ancient times, Babylon will once again be the seat of world power and the chief adversary of God's people. You remember back in our earlier studies of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, remember the statue? I told you then that the Lord used this statue as a picture of a timeline called the Age of the Gentiles. 
And it begins with the head of that statue representing the first nation, Babylon, who would rule in this period and in this age. And I told you then that the beginning of this age will have a lot of similarities to the end of the age. It's really like a circle coming complete again at the end. So at the beginning, you have Babylon as the chief nation on earth and as the center of all power, led by a man, Nebuchadnezzar, who had unrivaled world power. No one could challenge his authority. And at the end of the statue, you have the part of that body representing the final Gentile authority that will rule in this age before Christ's second coming. And just as the first was a single man ruling from Babylon over the whole world, so will the last be, the Antichrist ruling from Babylon over the whole world. And that similarity is not merely coincidence, of course. This is a message that the Lord is sending us to indicate something. Not just the fact that we're near the end by virtue of the fact that we've come full circle, but also to the importance of Babylon. That is, Babylon is the adversary of God's people. In the beginning and in the end, and even in the middle, it has a spiritual role as being the chief adversary of God. That is, the physical reality of Babylon's authority and the spiritual reality of a mystery Babylon are one and the same at two times in history, at the beginning of the age of Gentiles and at the end of the age of Gentiles. And even before the age of the Gentiles, it was also true that they were one and the same during the time of the Tower of Babel, during the time of the garden when the enemy was deceiving Adam and woman in in Mesopotamia. All of these moments keep reminding us of the connection between these two. So Satan has always been our true enemy. And like any enemy, he has always had a base of power And the base of power for him, if you will, his throne on earth, has always been the same place, Babylon. Or we might say more generally, Mesopotamia. And throughout the Bible, that region, Mesopotamia, has been associated with God's enemy and with efforts to undermine God's people. Now, of course, after the initial spread of humanity out of that region, following the garden, following the tower, As the world was populated and the face of the earth was covered with people, demonic forces followed so that the enemy is at work everywhere at some level. But his headquarters, ground zero, has forever remained in the Middle East, in this plain of Shinar, it's called, in the historical area of Babylon. And as I mentioned in the last time I taught, in the final stages of tribulation, before this age comes to an end, the Lord begins systematically tearing down the earth in a way that leaves only this little section of the world remaining and functioning, and only two cities remaining and functioning at the very end, to make the point that it's always been between these two, God in Jerusalem, Satan in Babylon. And so as we reach the final stages of tribulation now, and you see the enemy's stronghold being torn down, the Lord is doing this in preparation for his son's second coming. Because when the Lord returns, he won't have a big job waiting for him. It's more of a mop-up exercise. He's coming at the very end to deal with the very least bit left of what God has, has uh, allowed to remain, and then he dispenses with it. So the bold judgments are the final series of blows that the Lord brings about in preparation for that second coming. And there are two phases to his plan of destruction for the enemy and his home territory. The first of those two we studied last time in chapter 17. Chapter 17 told us how the Lord would destroy spiritual Babylon. Now remember, spiritual Babylon 
is the term that I'm using anyway for what we could also call the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of Satan, which he has been trying to establish on earth in opposition to the kingdom of God, which the Lord is at work establishing. And the kingdom of Satan takes the form primarily of false religious systems of one kind or another that Satan has created and then promoted among the nations of the earth. And we said this last time, if you remember from chapter 17, we said that there are almost an infinite number, not literally, but countless, let's say, a countless number of world religions of one size or another. Every day you turn around, there's a new one. And they are all, in reality, shades of the same color because they were all invented by Satan. They all have the same author, and therefore they all serve the same purpose, to distract humanity and to lead them away from the true gospel of salvation, such that you can distill all of those things down to really two. There is the true gospel, and then there's everything else, and any distinction you make within that other part is irrelevant. Satan would have you think that there's differences, he would appreciate that if you thought one was better than another, he likes when you do that. If you call one of those false religions more Christian than another, he's really happy when you do that because as we like to think, there are graduations from the falsehoods of the world to the truth and in fact there aren't. It's an all or none. You don't have the truth, you don't have anything. What what is a 99% truth called? 100% lie, okay? So the enemy has become very good at finding shades of things to offer to the world Mormonism would be a classic example, something, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, boy, they look awful good. They seem to talk about Jesus. They got a cross once in a while. How do we know they're not Jesus? Because they don't have the gospel, because it's not faith alone. And these are the distinctions that help, we help us sort out who's who. The enemy, though, is working very hard to make that hard to do, so that we would embrace things that are less than true. And in the case of the unbelieving world, these are stumbling blocks to finding the truth. All right, so collectively... Everything in pink up there, whatever name you want to call it, whatever version of it you want to name, collectively they form an alternate kingdom to the one that God is establishing through the gospel. And that false kingdom began, not coincidentally, at Babel, at the Tower of Babel. Remember last time I told you that was the very first false religious experience in history. And it has continued on from there into today. But you and I, anyone who comes to the light, that is, if we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are transferred, spiritually speaking, out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of God. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness, domain could be translated kingdom, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right, so this is the battle to end all battles. It's the one that began in the beginning, and it's the one that must be put to an end before Christ comes back. And at the end of the age, in preparation for his return, the Lord systematically destroys the enemy's kingdom on earth, beginning first with the spiritual version of it. Chapter 17, if you remember, opened up with symbols, a woman, a beast, And these symbols were teaching us in chapter 17 how the end of the age of the Gentiles will be connected with this destruction of spiritual Babylon. It starts with a woman, as I said, riding a beast. Now the woman 
is called the mother of all harlots, a harlot being a counterfeit wife, if you will. And as such, it's a great picture of a counterfeit religion, counterfeit worship. And just as the Bible talks about Israel committing adultery with idols, it's the same concept. So as the mother of all harlots, we're talking about the origin of all false religion. So kingdom Satan, and she rides a seven-headed beast, which we learned when we studied this, represented the ruling people, the ruling kings of the age of the Gentiles. So putting those two together, during the age of the Gentiles, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, finishing with the Antichrist, Satan's spiritual kingdom will be supported, as it were, by earthly rulers who are under his control, starting again with Babylon, with Nebuchadnezzar. And those empires, just by virtue of their existence on earth and their control over culture and society, they will promote false religion and trap generations of humanity in false claims. We heard in chapter 17 that one of their motivations is they become rich by giving honor to this false god. They manipulate culture and society for their own gain, and they can do that in part through religion. And those empires also serve a purpose of oppressing Israel. That's the age of the Gentiles' purpose, after all. And they persecute saints, just as those who came along in the Reformation were persecuted by the powers that be of the Catholic Church, or just like somebody was persecuted in first century Israel, or or persecuted in second century Roman uh, uh, authority. The same is true in all cases, that these dynasties of empires were accomplishing all of these things, trapping people in idols, persecuting Israel, and persecuting the saints. Now that beast had seven heads. We studied this, and I won't go back through it all, but those heads represented various world rulers who come and go during this period. They serve, in effect, like mile markers. They mark the passage of time through the age of the Gentiles, telling us how close we are to the end of the spiritual Babylon. By John's day, there was only one world uh, leader of the the seven who had not yet appeared, we were told. We know that to be the Antichrist. And John was told that after he appears, Satan's kingdom will come to an end. So, spiritual Babylon, that is this spiritual effect of Satan establishing his kingdom on earth as as he attempts to, to do so, that kingdom, spiritual Babylon, will be destroyed at the end of tribulation, beginning with the end of all religion. Spiritual Babylon, after all, is that wheel of all the different flavors of false religion. All of that is gone before the end of tribulation. At the midpoint of trib, all objects and houses of false worship are destroyed, we were told in chapter 17, as a result of the world being told that from now on you can only worship the Antichrist. So in the kind of ironic twist, Satan and the Antichrist himself are responsible for putting an end to spiritual Babylon apart from themselves. Now in their mind, it's to their advantage because now all attention is on them. But in reality, it's to their disadvantage as God intended because when Jesus comes back now, he doesn't have to destroy houses of worship the world over or imams or priests or shamans or whatever. He only has to get rid of three things, Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet, and he's done away with all of it. So In this interim step, the Lord has actually set up the opportunity for him to be ready to crush what's left when he returns. It's similar in a way to the fact that at the end of the world, we're only gonna have 10 world leaders instead of 200 and something. Easier for the Antichrist to rise to power, taking away only 10 thrones rather than 200 and something. Same idea. All right. Now in chapter 17, we also read this. 
Verse 13, we read that these kings that will be in charge at the end of the age, they'll have one purpose. They give their power and their authority to the beast. Remember that? And then a little later in that chapter, it says, and the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot. The harlot is that circle with all of the different religions in it, if you want to think of it that way. They will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. That is, they will do away with all other forms of religion. Verse 17, why? Because God has put it in their heart to execute his purpose, God's purpose, by having a common purpose. And what is their common purpose? Worship the beast, give their power and authority to the beast, and it says, and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. All right? So even as all of these things are playing out and the leaders of whatever, you know, whatever role the, the individuals have in their leadership, as they do what they want to do, nonetheless, they're doing what God wants. Another good example of his sovereignty. All right, that's chapter 17. So now as we move into chapter 18, the Lord has set up the spiritual kingdom of, of Satan for destruction at the Lord's return. That is, he's already destroyed everything else except Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. That will happen at Christ's second coming. So that's now positioned for destruction. It's just one step away from being wiped out. God's taking care of that. So all that remains now is the physical Babylon, the remnant of what was the nation's capital and all of its impact on earth. And that's the second half of judging Babylon. The second judgment takes place as part of a campaign of war. It's called the War of Armageddon. So the destruction of geographical Babylon is now the subject of tonight's teaching. And the discussion of that destruction is actually most, mostly found in the Old Testament, in numerous prophecies. So in order to understand how God goes about destroying physical Babylon, as I'm calling it, or you can think of it as the city itself, we have to spend some time in Isaiah and Jeremiah, which we will do as we move through 18. With all of that said, now let's move back to Revelation or to Revelation 18. Also noting as we do this that Revelation 16 and 17, 16 is where you heard the bold judgments, 17 is where you saw spiritual Babylon destroyed. Those two chapters are backdrop to what's going on in chapter 18. These things are somewhat coincident in time. I'll sort it out for you, let's go. Chapter 18, verse one. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality." This is a bit of an intro, and it opens with a familiar phrase, after these things. In Greek, that's metahautahautas, and that phrase in Greek would imply a cause and effect relationship. So in other words, what's coming out of chapter 16 is now the, the cause of what you're seeing take place in chapter 18. So the earlier events that have led into what we're about to study are the pouring out of bold judgments from chapter 16. And the way to understand 16, 17, and 18 is this way. 16 is where you see God acting, and then chapter 17 is a bit of an interruption in the narrative. It takes you out of the flow of that, and it's almost like going back in time a little bit. And chapter 17 is giving you the history on spiritual Babylon, a woman, the beast, kind of explaining that whole concept to you. And then it moves into the narrative again near the end, saying, 
the result of this uh, period of history is that we will turn away from false religion except for one particular false religion, the Antichrist, and the rest will be gone. That's a bit of a reversal in time because that takes us back to mid-trib. So chapter 17 is an interruption, and if you want to see evidence of that, if you go back and look at the beginning of 17, John is, it says, carried away to see a vision of the harlot. And then, that chapter having been backstory, now that it's finished, you get to chapter 18, and now, notice in verse one, the direction of movement is away from heaven and back toward the earth again, as the angel begins to do things on earth. So that's the way to understand 16, 17, and 18 in terms of sequence. 16 is the whole thing told out. We go from first to last judgment. 17 is a bit of backstory to explain there was a spiritual Babylon, it's been addressed. Then chapter 18 is picking back up in the narrative to say, now let's look at what those bold judgments did to the city of Babylon. Okay? And in chapter 18, looking at the great city judged, John describes the angel as leaving heaven with great authority, perhaps an archangel, we don't know. And the angel declares twice, for emphasis, that Babylon the Great is fallen. So what follows in this chapter is God's fulfillment of prior prophecy in the Old Testament concerning Babylon. And these prophecies are scattered all over the Old Testament, and they're largely concentrated in three prophets, although you'll find them elsewhere. But Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are the ones who speak the most about these things, primarily Isaiah and Jeremiah. And the angel declares that this city, Babylon, will be so utterly devastated by what comes out of these bold judgments that it isn't just destroyed for the moment, it will be left uninhabited forever, which is an interesting idea because it means that it still exists, that is, God didn't just wipe it off the face of the earth, he left the place there at some level, if nothing else there's a border sign or something, there's just nothing in it. So the only thing that will remain in that place, he says, are demons that will be confined there during the kingdom. In verse two we're told it will become a dwelling place for demons, unclean spirits, And he mentions unclean birds, which would mean scavengers. The reference to scavengers is probably a simple way of saying that at the initial onset of this destruction, there will be so many dead bodies everywhere that the only thing left living in that place will be the scavenging birds who dispose of them. We know that comes later in chapter 19. So at the mention of animals associated with death, you have this allusion to not only the spirits of demons that will be there, but the idea that the place itself will be associated with the aftermath of death, to include the confinement of spirits, of disobedient, demonic spirits. Isaiah says this in chapter 13, verse 19. He says, And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there, But desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls, ostriches also will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers, and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time also will soon come, and her days will not be prolonged. Before we look at the detail, let me just give you a complimentary text from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51 says this, May the violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitant of Zion will say, And may my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, Jerusalem will say. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm going to plead your case and exact full revenge for you, and I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry. Babylon will become a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and hissing without inhabitants. 
So these are ancient prophecies about the destruction of Babylon. Obviously, they're not specific enough for us to see uh, exactly what's happening. It's more the outcome or the result that matters here. A place forever uninhabited except by, notably, unclean animals. Uh, An animal that is a uh, scavenger off of dead meat is unclean. Certain birds of, prey are, or birds of prey are always unclean. So these descriptions are telling us these are a way of saying this is a, a place of uncleanness, not a place that's been sanctified, not a place that will be inhabited during the kingdom. And some might look at these descriptions of Babylon's destruction and wonder, well, maybe this is just talking about what happened to them when the Medo-Persians rolled into town. Because after all, the Babylonians only lived, only had power for so long, and then somebody else came and they had power, right? We know that from the statue. Well, the problem is, the context here doesn't fit, right? Because after Medo-Persians came in and took over Babylon, it wasn't uninhabited, quite the opposite. They took it over. Um, and the other things that are being said here are not accurate to that day. In fact, just the fact that they talk here about a, a bloodletting as a result of this destruction, that itself is not consistent with the history of how Medo-Persia took over Babylon. In the conquest of Babylon, the Medo-Persians we're able to take it almost bloodlessly without any fighting at all. Uh, the city of Babylon in that time was protected by a high wall that no one could successfully assault. Cities with walls, of course, was the norm, but major cities that had particularly good walls were the most, hard, uh, most hardened to uh, enemy attack. And Babylon also had the benefit of water, a natural water moat by the Euphrates River. And so the, you notice that bridge on the, top, on the left side of the image there, that bridge was the main entrance to the gate of the city, uh, but they could, they could defend that wall so well that the, there, was, there was no way an army could get a, a, up over it if they took a frontal assault. But Cyrus the Great figured out that if he dammed up the Euphrates River upstream, when the river level dropped, his troops marched in through the river itself when it was low, and they were able to sneak up into the gate and destroy it at night when the Babylonians were sleeping after a celebration, uh, a night of feasting. And so they were able to enter the city with no fighting at all and capture it while it was asleep. So even that is not consistent with the descriptions that we're hearing in this case. So this has to be a future destruction, something that's yet to happen, something that is horrific, um, devastating, everyone's killed, no one's left, and no one ever lives there again. So this is something that we're waiting for in the time of tribulation. Um, In verse three, there are three reasons given by the way, here's a picture I meant to flip to earlier. Somebody gave you a bit of visual for the sneak attack. All right, back to the text. In verse three, we have three reasons for her destruction in this coming time. Number one, the nations have become drunk by her immorality. Now, that sounds a lot like what you heard in chapter 17. Uh, it's, I think, a, a reference looking back to the harlot and to spiritual Babylon. But knowing that chapter 18 is talking about the physical city here again, what we're having to understand then is that the Antichrist and his predecessors have used their reign from this place of power to uh, Im- institute immorality in the world and to invite that in the world around them. And so this is the first indictment of the corrupting influence of the city of Babylon and particularly the world religions that have come out of what Satan does there. Secondly, he says the kings of the earth will commit acts of immorality with Babylon the Great. And because Babylon controls all political, military authority and the like in the time of tribulation, everyone does the, king, the Antichrist bidding. Uh, we heard earlier that they give their power to the beast, all the other kings, so he's in charge. 
and he uses that to his own benefit, committing acts of immorality, including the martyrdom of saints. And that's the second charge, that it is the seat of power corrupting government, of a corrupting government. And then finally, he says, the merchants of the world profit from the Antichrist rule. So now you get into kind of a social argument. That is, the Antichrist regulates all commerce. Remember, he takes, everyone has to take a mark, or you don't get it to buy or sell. And as a result, his city becomes unbelievably rich, because whoever controls the flow of money becomes rich over it. And his list... Um, he, he, the, the material wealth, the financial control of that city becomes another way of oppressing and, and dominating over individuals. It would seem to suggest that there is a negative view of those who would use wealth to a negative way to the, to the uh, harm of other people. Certainly that's what he does here, corrupting the world's economy. So now, with those three reasons, we get to the end, at least the beginning of the end, verse four. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid. Give her back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, In one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. All right, so this is the start of the judgment of the city of Babylon. You have a voice from heaven who calls out that those who belong to God and are in the city, they should escape her corrupting influence in the coming judgment. Now, the first thought there is, why are they even there? Where else are they gonna be? There's two choices, and the other city's about to get attacked by the Antichrist. So this would be the logical place to hide out, in the Antichrist's house. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with him. It just means you're staying out of the way. But now you're finding out, if you're living there, that it's not a safe place, that this is going to be a place of destruction. And so God calls from heaven. It's interesting to think that there's a heavenly call. It's not clear to us how they hear it, but I would assume they just hear it like you'd hear any other call. It just happens to be from heaven. And they're told, leave. Now, if they remain in the city, they're going to die in the judgment. Now, that would not take away their salvation, but they're also being told this is not where God wants them. By the way, this is a very consistent thing in the Bible. Think back for a moment how the Lord always discriminates between those who are his and those who are not when he pours out judgment. Remember, 2 Peter says it this way, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So this is a biblical principle. When God pours out judgment, he protects those who are his, period. Now you'll remember how the Lord removed Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah before he poured out judgment there. He removes the church from the earth before he begins the, ju- the judgments of tribulation. Uh, he has been preserving Uh, He preserved Israel in Goshen while he poured out judgment on Egypt. He's been preserving Israel and the 144,000 and the believers during this time. He knows the difference. And I feel it's interesting that we often get very worried about how we might get caught up in the things of the world, forgetting that God knows the difference. If we would not put our own children under penalty when it's deserved by someone else, why would God do it? I mean, why do we think he's less capable of discriminating? It, It makes no sense to me that we worry about those things. It's been very clear from the start that he knows who are his and who are not and he will not pour his judgment out on the wrong one. And now he calls for his believers to leave the city. And if we go back to Jeremiah, this warning has actually been given already. 
in advance, presumably to the Jew who might still be in the city. Jeremiah 51.5 says this, for neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God, the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. Notice that? The nations have drunk of her wine. Therefore, the nations are going mad. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her. Bring balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her, and let us each go to our own country, for her judgment is reached to the heavens and towers up to the very skies. So to the Jew, Jeremiah says, if you're still living in Babylon and having not taken the mark of the beast yet, probably hiding somewhere, we would assume, flee the city. God's warning is to leave Babylon. It's similar to the one that Christ gives in Matthew 24 when he tells those who would be in Jerusalem in AD 70 that when they see the city surrounded by armies, go to the mountains. Don't even go back down to get your cloak. Get out of town. It's the same concept here. The judgment is about to happen. You've been warned. Get out of the way. And those who have faith in the word of God will do it. Similarly, the Jews here who hear the word of God from Jeremiah while they're in Babylon, think about that, someone reading this same text years from now in the midst of these circumstances, will put two and two together by the grace of God and see for themselves, this is the warning we were given. We should move, and they will save their lives. Here's the question, though. Where do they go? Well, what are your options? There's only one. They all go to Jerusalem, which is exactly what God wanted. Jeremiah 51.10. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us recount, that is, retell this story, Let us recount in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Jump to 49, verse 49. Indeed, Babylon is to fall for the slain of Israel, as also for Babylon the slain of all the earth have fallen. You who have escaped the sword, depart, do not stay. Remember the Lord from afar and let Jerusalem come to your mind. So there are only two places to go and God is moving the chess pieces. He's moving his people out of Babylon to where he wants them to be. By the way, where does the Lord come back? Jerusalem. He's moving his people to where they need to be. When they arrive in Jerusalem, what these verses tell us, among others in that chapter, is that these refugees from Babylon share the news with their fellow Jews who are already in the city of Jerusalem that Babylon has been destroyed. And it says that the news comes by way of messenger and that's a reminder that every other form of communication has been devastated. There's no phoning up. No one's watching this on social media. The only way they know about it is because someone walks the news to them. And back in verses six through eight of uh, chapter 18, the angel declares this judgment would be recompense for Israel. Here you see the same thing in Jeremiah. It would be paying Babylon back for their millennia of persecution against the Jews. Remember, the fact that Babylon as a city has come and gone and come again and in ruins today, don't get too fixated on that one specific place. Think of it more generally. That is, what started there and what moved around the world. The influence of the region and how it's propagated over time. What started as the Tower of Babel and has evolved from there. That influence is the point. It's centered on a place, so the place has meaning and value and it must be destroyed, but it's because of Satan being in that place and his influence through it. So, 
Babylon is responsible for the mistreatment of Israel. That is because of Satan's home base there. And uh, it starts, the, the most obvious place that persecution starts is with Nebuchadnezzar because that's where God began to use the nations of Gentiles against Israel. I want to take you to one psalm here that gives you a great overview. This is the entire psalm written out here, Psalm 137. Listen to what it says. By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Obviously, those are the exiles from Nebuchadnezzar's attack, right? Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. You know, not every psalm is about walking through valleys of... You know, sometimes it's just pure retribution. So the psalmist here says that the Lord is going to remember the day that Babylon ordered Jerusalem to be raised, and it's going to be judged for it. Back in Revelation 8, verse 7, the angel quoted there, if your verse, if in chapter, eight of, uh, chapter 18, sorry, chapter 18 of Revelation, verse 8, if your quote there shows capital letters, that's an indication that there's a quote taking place out of the Old Testament. In this case, Uh, Revelation 18 is quoting Isaiah 47, which is another lament against Babylon, saying, how blessed is the one who repays Babylon. Now, here again, I want to address the the question that sometimes comes up by some, which is, well, didn't all of this come about through the Medo-Persian attack on Babylon? Isn't that when God did all of this justice? Well, we know the Persians came in and they attacked Babylon, obviously, but we already said they didn't do it in a bloody affair. They did it in a bloodless affair. Uh, Secondly, uh, they didn't completely destroy Babylon. They just took it over and made use of it for themselves. What we're hearing of here and everything we've read so far is an utter destruction such that it is forever gone and never rises again in any form. And obviously it's happening without any future inhabitation. Those are different situations. It's never happened yet. So the city must be destroyed, must be done so ultimately and completely and done so as a punishment for their history. And the destruction of physical Babylon, so we've, let me give you the big picture here again. We have the destruction of uh, spiritual Babylon, which happens through the Antichrist taking over and putting away all false religion. And that itself is something God triggers through a series of steps at mid-trib. Now we have the destruction of the physical Babylon that we want uh, as well, so that there is nothing left physically as well as spiritually upon the Lord's second coming. But the physical destruction of the city has itself a two-part process, all right? So we're looking still at the city, but now we're gonna divide it into two stages. And in the first stage of the destruction of the city, it's accomplished by not God, but by men. This is a, if you remember, we, we studied in uh, last time about the movement of the Antichrist forces out of his home territory in Babylon and into northern Israel. Remember we did that? So you have the the forces over here now. They moved over here once the river 
was dried up to let them pass. That was the sixth bowl judgment. All right. Now that they are gone, an opportunity opens up for others to attack the city of Babylon now that it's defenseless. That's going to be the first part of the destruction of the city. Following that, a second part of the destruction will happen by God supernaturally through the outpouring of the plagues of the seventh bowl judgment, which you've already learned about in chapter 16. All right? So in Revelation 18, we're only reading a summary of both, that is, of the city being destroyed ultimately, but not the details of how those two play out because those details are in the Old Testament. And as I've said many times, the book of Revelation assumes that you already know what's in the rest of the Bible, and therefore it doesn't repeat it. So let's study the destruction of Babylon from the standpoint of the hands of men, that first part I just described, because that's not in the book of Revelation, it's only in the Old Testament, starting in Isaiah chapter 11. So what we're about to learn is this, that in the time of tribulation, at the very end, there comes a moment in which forces come out of the north and destroy the city of Babylon, attacking it after the Antichrist has left. Isaiah 13 says this. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalted ones to execute my anger a sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people, a sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. All right, this is the intro. Isaiah delivers an oracle here, or a word concerning Babylon, and he says the city's gonna be destroyed, and he, he makes it clear he's the one initiating it. He calls mighty warriors his consecrated ones. Now, the warriors are consecrated in a sense. The word consecrated, kadash in Hebrew, it just literally means set apart or appointed for God's purpose. Does not mean they're, they're literally holy. Doesn't mean they're believers. Doesn't mean God can use anyone. Doesn't require that he's only using saints. He's calling them consecrated in that sense, though, that he has purposed them to this particular outcome. And God calls them. You can almost imagine like a whistling for a dog. He calls them, and then he says the immediate response is, the sound of an army, many people, many nations, kingdoms gathered to mustard for battle. They come from a faraway country toward the land of Babylon to destroy Babylon. Now, who's going to oppose the Antichrist at this point? That's the first question, right? Where is all this coming from? Well, Jeremiah gives us that. Jeremiah 50, 46. At the shout, Babylon has been seized, the earth is shaken, and an outcry is heard among the nations. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'm going to arouse against Babylon and against the inhabitants of Lebkamai, the spirit of a destroyer. I will dispatch foreigners to Babylon that they may winnow her and may devastate her land. For on every side, they will be opposed to her in the day of her calamity. Let not him who bends his bow bend it, nor let him rise up in his scale armor. Do not spare her young men. Devote all her army to destruction." They will fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and pierced through in their streets. All right, so this is a prophecy about, again, the destruction of Babylon. Notice that it's not bloodless, very much the opposite. 
Everyone's dying, fallen down, slain in the land of the Chaldeans, right? That tells us this is not a description of the Medo-Persian invasion because that was bloodless for the most part. This is not. So this is something different. Uh, when you see it said there that it's uh, the result of a God raising up a spirit of a destroyer, that's not a great translation. A more literal translation would be a destroying wind. That's actually what's written in Hebrew. And that's because this is not a reference to a spirit itself, not literally. This is comparing the movement of a group of people to the wind. God raising up a wind as if a storm sweeps across the land in, in terms of picturing an invading army. So that's what this spirit of destroyer is. It's, a, it's an army. And the invading army attacks the people in the city. You notice it's in hand-to-hand combat, simple weaponry, not advanced weaponry. The result is all the citizens are killed, all of them. Remember, it's going to be uninhabited after it's over. And the attack is not only against the city, it's against Leb Kamai. That, in Hebrew, is a literal translation because they didn't have any way to translate it otherwise. It's, it's just a, a proper word in Hebrew. But it means heart of my adversaries, which is an ancient term for Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, it's a great term, right? It's the heart of our adversary. And in that sense, it's the mother of harlots. It's the start of all bad things. So Mesopotamia is the target, not just Babylon, but the source of all bad things. Again, not the attack of the Medo-Persians. They weren't trying to put away the influence of Babylon. They were just trying to take it over. So back to the question, who's conducting this attack on the Antichrist headquarters? Going forward in, in, uh, or going backward in this case to Jeremiah 50, says, the word which the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, through Jeremiah the prophet. Declare and proclaim among the nations, proclaim it, lift up a standard, do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured, Bel has been put to shame, Marduk has been shattered, her images have been put to shame, her idols have been shattered, for a nation has come up against her out of the north, and it will make her land an object of horror, and there will be no inhabitant in it, see that same consistent outcome, right? Both man and beast have wandered off and they have gone away. For behold, I'm going to arouse and bring up against Babylon a horde of great nations from the land of the north, and they will draw up their battle lines against her. From there she will be taken captive. Their arrows will be like an expert warrior who does not return empty-handed. Behold, a people is coming from the north, and a great nation, and many kings will be aroused from the remote parts of the earth. They seize their bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses. Marshaled like a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. So Jeremiah tells us the attack comes from the north. Now we're getting a little more specific, but you notice it's not just one place in the north. It consists of great nations and many kings, but in some sense they're all one. All right? And it will involve people from remote parts of the earth. Later in Jeremiah, we get the identity of some of those nations involved. Verse 27 of chapter 51. Lift up a signal in the land, blow a trumpet among the nations, consecrate the nations against her. Summon against her the kingdoms of Arat, Mini, Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up the horses like bristling locusts. Consecrate the nations against her, the king of the Medes, their governors and all their prefects, and every land of their dominion. So Jeremiah names God's consecrated, going back to Isaiah, as these nations. And I'm going to give you a map that's not exactly these same names, but it's just going to give you a reference. So he mentions Ararat, uh, Ararat, that's Turkey. Mini, which is Armenia. 
Ashkenaz, which is southern Russia, the Black Sea area, and the Medes, which of course is Persia, the Medo-Persians. So that's the area of Iran today. So now we remember at the time of tribulation, as you get into tribulation, what do we know about the world politic? There's only 10 kingdoms, remember? Only 10 kings as you start tribulation, according to Daniel. So we know the political map of that time will look radically different than it does now. But culture being what it is, you're not gonna be able to erase the cultural distinctions that exist on the planet just because you call something a new kingdom. So the logical assumption is you'll have 10 kingdoms, but they will be uh, a, a aggregation in each case, of some section of existing kingdoms today, and in many respects, the divisions within will still remain. They'll just all be under one ruler, one king. And so it would seem as though the area north of present-day Mesopotamia, Iraq, will include, obviously, some of these places that are there now. Turkey, Armenia, Russia, Iran, etc. They may be under one king. The king might be called the king of the Medes, because that's the term we see used here. But that king has this combination of territory, which if you include Russia, stretches to the ends of the northern end of the earth at that point. And so maybe these together form the common enemy coming from the north, attacking, and God judges Babylon by starting this war, moving it forward, calling them into, its, into the battle. And it, so this destruction of the city starts in a very ordinary way, an invading army coming to destroy the city. Back to the question, though, why would an army dare to attack the Antichrist headquarters during tribulation now that he has so much power, after he's become king of the earth? Well, revisit the story from earlier stages. Remember I showed you this a moment ago. You have the Euphrates going from uh, blood to dry. You have the army being called by those demons, those three demons that go out, those, the unclean spirits like frogs, that call the armies to come to Jerusalem. The Antichrist sees an opportunity to attack and destroy, so he leaves with his army, and they end up parking in northern Israel, a place called the Jezreel Valley, preparing to descend down into Jerusalem and attack the Jewish people there and take control of the last remaining city on earth other than Babylon. As they leave, they have taken all the city defenses with them. So they leave their capital city undefended, probably because he didn't imagine he had any reason to defend it at that point. And somehow, in what the Lord does, he incites an interest in that northern kingdom to have opportunity to take a coup, to take control of the world by taking the capital city while the Antichrist is away and while the city is unguarded. Also, remember what we read in chapter 17. For God has put in their hearts, that is, these kings, He's put it in their hearts to execute God's purpose, his purpose, by having a common purpose. And what was their common purpose? Well, their common purpose was to give the world to the beast, but notice, until the words of God would be fulfilled. That is, that phrase at the end suggests that the kings will change their mind at some point. That until God's word required otherwise, they would give their kingdoms to the beast. But the word of God in Isaiah 13 And the word of God in Jeremiah 50 and in Jeremiah 51 must be fulfilled. And it says, until the words of God will be fulfilled. You could say it this way, until the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah are to be fulfilled. And then when those are to be fulfilled, they will no longer have in their heart this purpose of giving everything to the beast. They will turn on the beast, at least at the very end. And so when God is ready to judge Babylon, he calls his consecrated ones, the kings of the north, to turn against the Antichrist, 
Because the Antichrist has left the city unguarded, unprotected, they see an opportunity and they attack. And they destroy the city. They come in and they conquer it. They kill everyone in it. That's what the prophecies say. I think their motivation would be obvious. They want what he has. They want to take control. But in reality, they're doing God's will, which is to further erode the kingdom of, the, of Satan in these last hours before Christ's second coming. So to review, phase two of the Battle of Armageddon. Phase one was the drying up the, of the Euphrates and the movement of the Antichrist forces out of Babylon and into Israel. That was phase one. Phase two of the Battle of Armageddon is the destruction of the city of Babylon and that is accomplished or the destruction of Babylon proper, and that is accomplished in two parts. First, spiritual Babylon is taken away by virtue of how the Antichrist does away with false religion, God letting him do that and using that purpose. And then secondly, the destruction of the physical Babylon, which itself is two parts. First, the war that we just studied. Secondly, the bold judgments that are poured out, the earthquake, the hailstorm, and so on, that comes as a result of the bowl being poured out. So. The destruction of the city is the seventh bowl judgment. The first part of that is armies invade. We just studied that. That's chapter 18. The next part of that is the hailstorm and earthquake, which we studied earlier in chapter 16. These are not coming in chronological sequence. Okay? And then chapter 17, which we already studied, is the discussion of the end of spiritual Babylon. You don't put them together in sequence, you put them together holistically understanding the relationships between them having looked at all of it. That's what we're doing here, okay? The effect of the supernatural destruction is the last piece of chapter 18 and we can read to the, almost to the very end here. First, verse nine. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made of very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you and all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning saying, woe, woe, the great city, she who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste, and every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor, and as many as make their living by the sea, stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So the city is reduced to ruins, and it burns, everything in her has been laid waste. 
You notice there in the, in the discussion of those who see it, you have three classes of society mentioned in verse three. First of all, who are all mourning. Uh, in, in verse three, I'm sorry, um, three classes mentioned throughout here. You have the kings of the earth mourning for the loss of their important city. That's the political power. You have the merchants mourning the loss of trade and wealth. And you have the working class who profited from the city and, and were able to buy nice things there. Everyone's losing everything. Kind of sounds like stuff going on today, right? There's, although what's today is a very small version of what's going on here. Also notice three times it's mentioned it happens in one hour. So this is a conversation about the supernatural destruction. The earlier destruction, which made the city empty and desolate, was simply a precursor. Keep in mind, all of the army that just showed up and destroyed it, where are they when the supernatural destruction takes place? They're in it. Here again, God's setting up the circumstances so that he's, he's systematically cleaning up the world one area at a time. And notice lastly, they're all seeing this from a distance. Why are they all standing at a distance? Because this is a group that fear the torment she's receiving. So either they got out of there just as it started or they escaped the battle that preceded it. Now they're able to view it from a distance and see the torment of the, of the smoke go up to heaven. They're seeing the, the city completely laid waste. Back in... Chapter 16, verse 19, we were told that this judgment results also in the city being split. Remember this? The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So remember, chapter 16 is sort of that opening summary of all of these things. And that's part of the summary. Jeremiah gives us a really nice two-verse summary that shows us both parts of the city's destruction, the one that the army does and the one that God follows with in supernatural terms. Jeremiah 51. He says, Consecrate the nations against her, the king of the Medes, that's the leader of that northern force, their governors and all their prefects and every land of their dominion, and so the land quakes and writhes for the purpose of the Lord against Babylon stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitants. That verse alone wouldn't tell you enough to know what's going on, but we see it from what we've already learned. Verse 28 shows the conquering king of Medes that comes in, and we know that's not the Medo-Persians because verse 29 says it leaves it without inhabitants, which is not what happened when the Medo-Persians showed up. And it talks about the land quaking, which is a reference to the earthquake that comes with the seventh bowl judgment. So, one, then the other. All right? Finally, a brief eulogy. Verse 21. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. No craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For the merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth." How do you credit one city with killing everyone on the earth over all of the history of the earth? Only if behind the scenes in that city was the actor, the chief adversary who brought about all of that death and destruction. And that's the whole point here. Babylon isn't just a city. It's the hometown, the, the home base, the power center for the enemy. 
And that's its significance. And the angel in this case takes a great millstone. You know what a millstone is, right? It's that big round stone that's somewhere about this size with a hole in the middle that would roll around in a circle of pattern on top of grain to mill the grain and crush it. And you would push, an oxen would push that thing around. You've seen them sometimes in ancient cities and they're huge. They're, they're huge stones. Obviously they weigh a tremendous amount. And so imagine that being thrown into water. How far would it go? How quickly would it you know, fall through the water? That's the idea, never to be seen again. That's the image you need for Babylon. The enemy, not just the city now, right? Everything. The, the, the enemy, his influence, false religion, idolatry, all of what came with it, dumped into the sea, sinks to the bottom, never seen again. That day is coming. As a final footnote, what do you suppose the Antichrist thinks of all of this happening as he's sitting with his forces in northern Israel? Well, Jeremiah tells us. One courier runs to meet another, one messenger to meet another to tell the king of Babylon that his city has been captured from end to end. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them and his hands hang limp Distress has gripped him, agony like a woman in childbirth. It's fun to gloat here, isn't it? And also notice, again, courier and messengers. We're, not, we're, we're at a rudimentary form of life now because of the destruction on earth. And when the Antichrist hears the news, he, you know, he realizes now, and this is the purpose in this, he realizes now that his armies have no choice but to attack Jerusalem because there's only one city left on earth. He has nothing to go home for now. No reason not to continue forward in the plan. And that was the purpose in this for the Lord. The Lord baited him to leave in the first place through that process we studied already, and now he's giving him no reason to to stop. He's pressing the enemy forward. These are cheap, I keep saying this, but it's pieces on a chessboard, and the Lord keeps moving everything to checkmate for the enemy at Jerusalem. Everything is gonna end at Jerusalem. Everything has to, because that's where the culminating event is of the Lord's second coming. So the Lord is whittling away all the defenses, all the enemies, all the opposition, all the existence on earth to get us ready for the last stage of the War of Armageddon. And the final stage of the War of Armageddon, stages three through five, or three through six, rather, are all part of the second coming of the Lord in chapter 19. So as we go into chapter 19 next week, we don't get to the Lord's second coming proper. What we will do, though, is go through the Old Testament verses that talk about the next stages of the battle that happen in preparation for the Lord's return to put it all to an end, okay? That's next week. Let's pray and we'll do our customary time of Q&A. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for saving us, not just in the eternal sense, Father, but even in the temporal sense. Thank you for saving us from all of this. Thank you, Father, that there will be others who will be like us in that respect, and I ask, Father, that you would help us reach some of them not just with a message of, of warning, but the most important message, one of salvation. And if it can be useful to them in knowing about these things so that they might have more interest in what we offer them, Father, then let us use this in some way, not to scare, but to give confidence that there is something waiting for them in salvation that is worth it. How often some would hear the message of the gospel and wonder, why do I need a savior, Father? Well, the story of Revelation makes clear why. And we ask, Father, that you let us use it in that way for the benefit of some, We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.